on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you here this week, and we're batting one short because Sally can't be with us. She's got other commitments today that means she can't be here, but she will return fit and firing uh, for our next episode of On The Job. Hope your week has been a good one. Coming up on the podcast today, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is back in action. It shut down cold and hard at the start of last year's pandemic and in terms of job loss and people whose careers were defined by big moments, big occasions, big events, well, none bigger than those in the Comedy and Arts Festival, not just those on the stage, but those working behind the scenes as well, who lost one of their primary sources of income. A festival like that sustains artists and people in the industry for long periods and it just disappeared last year. And so we're going to talk to one such uh, comedian who's up and running again, got through COVID, and talked to him about JobKeeper and what it's meant to him and other artists, and I guess as an example in the wider community, of having that wage supplement, which the Australian Union Movement and others in civil society fought really hard for this time last year as the government dragged its feet, ummed and ah, said, oh, I don't know, money costs, you'll get by, trickle down, deal with it. Well, the supplement did come through and it made the world of difference to workers from all walks of life. It got people through the toughest times that they probably could have ever imagined. But the harsh reality is that in a week's time or less than a week, the JobKeeper supplement, bang, finished, over, you're on your own. So the government has decided to pull the pin on JobKeeper, and that's got a lot of people around the country, workers and some businesses as well, uh, who just don't know what staff they can and can't keep on, what the demand's going to be like in the economy, how much people are going to spend. Uncertainty is the currency of our age. We know that. But the one thing that we try to avoid is making people uncertain about their work, because that is the cause of so much distress uh, out there in the community. So we'll talk to Danny McGinley, who uh, is comedian who's got a show happening in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year about how he got through with JobKeeper and what this year looks like for him and what the comedy festival is going to look like too. It'll be a very different comedy festival, no doubt, because of uh, the year we've had, and I'm sure that will inform a lot of what is said on stage. Can you find a few laughs out of a pandemic? Well, if anyone can, the comedians at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival probably can. So that's coming up. Uh, but right now, let's talk about the end of JobKeeper and what that means with somebody who's been writing about it uh, for the entire year and has been a big critic of the way the Morrison government has handled the economic crisis that came along with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's Michael Pascoe from the New Daily. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach flying solo this week. JobKeeper, it has been something of a lifeline for literally millions of Australians. Just cast your mind back to around this time last year when everything turned to shit, let's face it. It was a nightmare for so many people in insecure work who suddenly found themselves, the jobs disappeared, maybe they're living from paycheck to paycheck, just getting by, no income, no entitlements. Hey, 
not a permanent job, so you got no holiday pay, you got no sick pay, and what are you going to do? So the queues outside of Centrelink's all over Australia shocked us all. I think it finally shocked the government into listening to Australian unions and others who were saying we need a genuine wage subsidy so that people can pay their bills and also to keep the economy ticking over, generate a bit of demand so we're spending something so that those who are in jobs still can keep those jobs. So it was a huge success, but it's coming to an end. And for lots of people, that's going to mean a return to uncertainty and an economic crisis. Michael Pascoe is an economics journalist who has been writing about this all the way through the pandemic for The New Daily. Uh, Full disclosure here, once was a sports editor at The New Daily. I'm a big fan of uh, the news platform. Uh, It's honesty, it's insight, and and Michael's writing is key to that. And he's here to talk to us today about the end of JobKeeper and all the related economic issues around where we are in the pandemic at the moment. And he joins us on the line. I think he's been on grandparent duty. So, Michael, how are you? How are the little ones? The little ones were very good, exhausting the way little ones are. Um, I was working hard, doing a bit of grandparenting and also taking one for the team, being a tourist in Queensland, uh, on the ground, research, there's no substitute for it. I was doing my bit. Okay, just on that, what's your sense, because you literally are sort of, I guess, on the ground, on the front line there, and, you know, Queensland is the, say, the flashpoint of disposable income and discretionary spend. So if people have got money, they're going to spend it in a holiday playground like that. What's your sense from what you observed? I have never seen the Sunshine Coast as busy as it was in the last couple of weeks outside of the Christmas period. Outside of school holidays, I've never seen it as busy. It's one of the things that gets missed in a lot of the the general broad conversation. certainly was missed in the alleged tourism package um, that was brought in by the government, is that Australians, we run a tourism deficit normally. Many more Australians go overseas for longer and spend money overseas than international visitors come here and spend money. So there has been a massive saving on what would have gone on international holidays, which has been pent up. Some of it has gone on buying new cars. Some of it's gone on buying artworks and holiday homes. And a lot of it has been saved for the opportunity to cross borders with some degree of safety and spend it at home. So the tourism hotspots for Australians are very hot indeed. One of the jokes of the airline rescue package, because it wasn't a tourism industry rescue package, was things like half-price tickets to Uluru and Broome. You can't get accommodation in those places. There's no point putting on half-price tickets because there's nothing on the ground that you can really get. Similarly, half-price tickets to the Sunshine Coast and Gold Coast as soon as those winter winds begin to whistle through Melbourne, Victorians en masse migrate. David Attenborough can call it, and <laughs> you don't need half price tickets to get them north of the Tweed. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't about tourism, it was about uh, airlines too big to fail. There are pockets that do need specific help, not broad brush stuff like this. Obviously, the the one everyone keeps quoting is far north Queensland, Cairns. That does depend upon a whole pile of international tourists each year, particularly when it's too hot for locals to want to go there. Um, but Cairns will pick up when the locals get the opportunity to get there. But the biggest foreign tourism destination in Australia by far is Sydney. And there's nothing in that package for Sydney. Sydney hotels 
have got lousy occupancy rates and there's nothing that's helping them. So, you know, you can't treat the Australian tourism market as a single thing. You can't treat Australia as a single economy. So big, broad brush policies will be a bit hit and miss. Um, They help when they hit and when they miss, oh, well. So that's a really interesting insight into what's happening in Queensland right now. But if we look back over the broad spread of the last 12 months, give us your assessment of how important JobKeeper and JobSeeker as well, when they were in full flow, were to keeping the economy alive and keeping working people you know, with their nose above the waterline. Oh, they're absolutely vital. They were going big and going fast and they poured an extraordinary amount of money into the economy, uh, they stopped us having a, a recession that would go on and on that we are coming out of. It's very hard to talk about a graph in a podcast or over the radio, <laughs> but the Reserve Bank Governor, when he was talking at the National Press Club last month, put up a graph which most people just washed over them. But if you understood that graph, it was both encouraging and absolutely frightening. Because what it showed is that state and federal governments, most of it federal, but states helped as well, pumped close to 15% of GDP into the economy. So they went into deficit by close to 15% of GDP. Most of that was in JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments, the, uh, the increase. So that had a massive impact on just remaining a civilized society. What is really scary, though, Francis, is that that graph showed over the next three financial years, the government input to the economy will go from nearly 15% to just less than 5%. So the government sector is going to withdraw 10% of GDP. Now, what that means, and what nobody seems to get, is that if the government is taking 10% of GDP out, over those three years, let's let's say it's an average of 3.3% a year, the private sector would have to be booming, would have to be growing by 3.3% just for the economy to stand still, to break even. Now, the private sector has not grown for three years at that rate for a very, very long time. So what that means is, with the government pulling back so much money, we're not going to have growth, we're not going to have unemployment fall, there is a risk, if they go ahead with this, that unemployment will start rising again and more by the bump that we're going to get in the next couple of months as JobKeeper ends. So why would they do it? You and I sit here, I guess we can declare ourselves in some sense as Keynesians. We believe that in the event the economy uh, goes to poo, that the government has a responsibility to stimulate demand and you know build some capital and infrastructure to, to keep uh, people in jobs and keep their communities and their families strong. Why would they not see this and go, yeah, that's a really dumb idea. We're, gonna, we're heading for you know, a, a cliff and a lot of working people are going to tip over the edge of it. Well, one part of me likes to believe that they won't do it, that they've been fibbing, but the figures that the Treasurer trotted out in the Maifo statement were not going to happen because as it happens, the impact will be very obvious and there is an election sometime, maybe not this year the way they're going, but certainly next year. And if they are pulling back the support by that amount, that'll be felt. However, I suspect there is a degree of ideology involved The government has said throughout from the very beginning that the assistance would be brief and targeted. 
and that they expect the private sector then to pick up the slack. And the, we saw with the last set of GDP figures, Treasurer Frydenberg pointed to that very nice, very strong, very welcome growth and said, look, it's working. Um, you know, here people are buying stuff and, and businesses are, are buying utes and it's all good. But of course, people are doing that largely with government money. That 90-odd billion and JobKeeper has been going into businesses and people's pockets and they're spending it. What happens when it's not there? Are they going to keep spending what they saved? And a lot of people have been saving money. A lot of businesses have been saving money too. Um, it's reasonable to expect them to then turn around and resume spending, but it's not going to happen in a hurry and it's not going to be enough. So the magic demand pill that they think is just going to suddenly materialise and keep uh, money flowing through the economy is going to evaporate. There's a political cost for the government in doing this, isn't there? Isn't there a sort of a lack of political nous here to think that they can shut down JobKeeper, watch unemployment climb through the roof, watch demand plummet and think that politically they'll be okay? Exactly. And that's why until the events of the last couple of weeks, I was absolutely certain that they would be going for an election this year in spring. They wouldn't wait because the chickens will come home to roost on this economic policy in the next financial year. Uh, There's obviously going to be a jump in unemployment as a JobKeeper ends in those sectors that have been particularly targeted. Uh, It won't have an immediate political impact, I, I suspect but it will get worse over time if they stick with this quite dramatic pullback and stimulus. Just by way of comparison, when the GFC hit, government stimulus was about 5% of the economy. Now, it took nine years to gradually wind that back to almost nothing. So over nine years, governments, both Labor and Coalition, were chipping away and very slowly got it back to almost nothing before the pandemic hit. Even while they were doing that, the economy was not going very well. You know, we had a pretty lackluster economy before the GFC hit. Business investment was lousy. Uh, We couldn't get inflation. Wages growth has been stagnant. Now, that was with a during a period of a very gradual withdrawal of government stimulus, the fiscal drag on the economy. If they try it at warp speed, three and a third percent a year for the next three years, I think it's going to be genuinely scary. It is genuinely scary. Michael, in terms of the underlying elements to all this as well, underemployment is key in this, isn't it? And we saw you know, the reduction in unemployment figures touted by Josh Frydenberg and the government uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But the truth is that most of those jobs are uh, either part-time or, or casual or insecure, and that the idea that somehow that's the answer to our economic crisis is a mirage. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who are not working enough to pay their bills or who haven't got enough to know, feel secure that they can look after themselves in the event that there's another lockdown. We haven't been able to uh, fix the structural problems in the economy, which would suggest to people that, that they should feel good about where they work, how they're working, and they can plan a future. It is a very complicated, massive question that there are no easy answers to. Uh, let me just be devil's advocate for a little bit of that. Yes, there's been an explosion in part-time work. A fair proportion of that is actually welcome. Uh, It does suit some people, uh, and that has been one of the factors in increasing the participation rate. But as you say, 
there is another whole cohort of people who are caught up in a gig economy and can't escape it. The implications of that go well beyond just the obvious problems of job insecurity, of, of living week to week, um, of, of falling into a poverty trap. It also means you can never get a loan to get on the real estate ladder. You can never aspire to own your own home if you are caught in a gig economy. Because one of the first things any bank will ask you when you go for a loan is how long you've been employed, uh, where are you employed, and if you're marginally attached to the uh, to the labour force, um, you're not going to score. So that then sets up another whole problem of housing insecurity, and we've seen the decline in home ownership, particularly among what used to be regarded as younger people. Part of that is to do with how broader housing policy, the cost of housing, but a lot of it is to do with that lack of secure employment, particularly in the first half dozen years of people leaving education and looking for work, when they are sort of bouncing between jobs, trying to learn and land something that they like and is secure. So we've got some big issues to deal with here. In the meantime, uh, the next little while is going to be pretty bumpy. What do you expect to see as JobKeeper comes off? Do you think unemployment is going to spike significantly? And do you think that might recalibrate the government's approach as they head towards budget time? Or do you think they're sort of ideologically locked in and they're going to try and ride it out? That uh, that is the multi-billion dollar question. The ideological force is obviously very strong in the government. Uh, you know, Josh Frydenberg quotes Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as his heroes. Uh, a bit of austerity, a bit of discipline, as he was telling everyone earlier this month. Uh, there is a belief that there's some tough medicine to be had, and if we all take our tougher medicine, we'll be better for it. Again, it is a delicate balance between allowing the economy to reset its parameters and assisting it to get there. So I think they look like pushing the envelope to see how much pain people can handle. And it is about the base. Politics have been transformed by Donald Trump to being purely about looking after your base and not really giving a damn about those who aren't going to vote for you anyway. So that will be weighed up by the government. The problems of the popularity of the Prime Minister being on the slide, thanks to the scandals of the last little while, of a ministry which is looking awfully shallow and travelled. If the if the news poll begins to run harder against them, yes, politics will overtake economic dogma and you can expect them to ease up. I personally can't imagine Scott Morrison being so wedded to austerity that he would risk losing an election if he thinks he's got a chance of buying one. So we'll find out in May with the budget on what the government has said so far, on what Josh Frydenberg keeps saying. Um, we are in for a very scary three years. The immediate impact, yes, people, you can point to the obvious jobs. Uh, the people who are have been kept on in Sydney hotels that are running at you know, 30% occupancy, if you were driving a tourist bus around Sydney or Melbourne that depended upon international visitors, um, yep, it's not going to look good for you. The How much of that saving, how much of that pent-up 
uh, demand can soften the blow? We'll find out. We've been surprising on the upside the last couple of months. I hope we continue to surprise on the upside. But it's an awfully big ask by the government. Michael Pascoe, always good to chat. Thank you for being with us on the job. A pleasure, Francis. Michael Pascoe is an economics journalist who has been writing about the COVID situation, JobKeeper, and the impact on the economy since it all began with the New Daily. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is uh, about to roll out. This time last year it didn't happen because COVID kicked it in the uh, the ghoulies. And whilst it denied everybody a laugh, and, you know, this is one of the biggest international comedy festivals on the planet, it also meant that a whole bunch of people in uh, the art scene, comedians, but also everyone who works behind the scenes, who put the shows on, who've invested a lot of their own money in making uh, the comedy festival work, including the comedians found that suddenly that was just not going to happen. So it was a wretched year for people in the industry and JobKeeper was something that basically kept a lot of people's noses above the water. This year they're stepping back out and uh, in the uh, COVID era, I don't know how they're going to be doing the rooms. Are you allowed to laugh out loud? What can you do at the comedy festival? How are we going to survive this? Let's find out. Danny McGinley uh, is up and about Literally, that's the name of Danny's new show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And uh, he's here to talk to us about his COVID year. And he joins us here on The Job. Danny, how are you going? Welcome to On The Job. Hey, Frankie. Yes, uh, very excited to be back telling jokes to strangers. And uh, thankfully, the mask rule has been lifted because, uh, you know, just people just smile at jokes and they got a mask on. That is absolutely useless. <laughs> uh, it must be a relief, A, just to be performing, given that, as I said, this time last year you were preparing to do a show. And tell people about the, the sort of the, the dynamic of this, because it's not just you were going to do a show. You spend a lot of your own money to get the show ready, to publicise the fact that you're going to be performing. It's a competitive marketplace, so you've got to find a way to get yourself front and centre of a whole bunch of people. Um, Tell us what happened in those couple of weeks when you realised that all of that investment that you'd made was just going to disappear. It was uh, it was genuinely uh, scary. And um, so the way the the business structure of the comedy festival is is anyone can do a show. You just need to pay the registration fee, and you are in. And you need, so you pay like five hundred bucks registration that gets you advertised on the comedy festival website and in the guide. Also, you've got to pay a venue hire fee. You need to pay a tech, and then you've got public liability insurance and you have to market it. So all in all, you're looking at about, you know, at bare minimum, at least five to 10 grand on putting on a show. And I'd, uh, I'd written a show uh, about, on my honeymoon, I went, me and my wife went to Chernobyl because she is uh, Ukrainian. We went back to the motherland and uh, took a tour of uh, the nuclear disaster because that TV show had been out and it was it's really in the zeitgeist. Uh, I'm not doing that show this year because it's it's not the year to really discuss nuclear disasters with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, when when they did cancel uh, everything, um, yeah, we were suddenly looking at you know footy because I also make money off uh, footy media and that was that was illegal. Suddenly, yeah, we had no source of income. So, thankfully, uh, my wife has a real job, so she was sort of uh, taking care of the kids most days. And doing a couple of days, but she went back full time. So I became the uh, the main parent during lockdown times, which is uh, 
was, you know, uh, character building, let's say that. <laughs> For everybody, no doubt. So, Danny, how important was JobKeeper in terms of giving you and other people within the art scene and, and in the comedy uh, scene a bit of stability for those that could access it because not everybody could? Yeah, it was, um, it was, you know, it's what kept the walls from the door. We would have had to, you know, probably borrow money off family or, or take out a loan or, you know, use what little savings we have. I mean, because you know, I work in the gig economy, so I'm used to there being, you know, famine and, and feast periods. But sadly, it came at the worst possible time because I'd spent all this money producing and marketing the show and I was about to get all the ticket sales. So it was not a good time. And yeah, JobKeeper absolutely uh, made the difference. But even then, comedy doesn't get many grants. I mean, any any arts grants that go out tend to go to the opera or, uh, you know, up and coming new artists. So, you know, worthier thing than a, you know, white bloke from, you know, the, the suburbs. So it, it was hard work even getting it. I was not used to just getting money from the government. Thankfully, my brother used to work at Centrelink. And that's not a euphemism. He actually did work there. And he talked me through the procedure. Yeah. And when that first two grand or two and a half, whatever it was, came into my account, it was genuinely like, oh, my God, really? quite surprising but it did uh, keep the kids fed so with JobKeeper ending at the end of March and you'll come off the back of the International Comedy Festival and then look to the future is it a little bit frightening to, to consider what your options are without JobKeeper yeah absolutely there is uh, you know there's there's still limited numbers in uh, comedy clubs. And the, and the really bad thing is uh, it's a bit of a trickle-down problem because, uh, you know, your big-name comedians, your, your Will Andersons, your Ross Nobles, Dave Hughes, they've been struck as well. So they are, you know, they're desperate to do gigs. So, of course, people are going to go, you know, book them for corporates and stuff. So, you know, then uh, we all sort of get bumped down a gear. I would hate to be an, uh, an up-and-coming uh, trying to establish yourself comedian because uh, there's no way you – know, we, we're all – Seagulls fighting for chips at this point. So, Danny, it, it, is it, has it also been a little bit uh, patchy? Because, say, you know, in Queensland, for instance, the uh, the pandemic was something of someone else's problem all of last year. We saw that with sport, for instance. There was a lot of sport played in Queensland. People lived their lives, like in Western Australia, pretty much unaffected by COVID. Yet, say, in Victoria, where you live, uh, your, your career, your work just stopped because of the circumstance. Absolutely. And I think it is grossly unfair that Victoria is getting JobKeeper cut off at the same time as the other states. I mean, they, they had lockdown for about 20 seconds and then they went back to their lives and they have had the same assistance as us. And it is just so supremely unfair that Victoria is being left to fend for itself. And if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would suggest that this may be some punishment for Victoria not voting for the coalition as much as the other states. But that would be a very cynical, very cynical idea, and I won't uh, admit that out loud. <laughs> What's the vibe of the comedy festival going to be this year in the, the era of COVID? Is there going to be a lot of comedy about surviving and dealing with it? Yes, yes. I've done a few, uh, a fair few showcase shows building up to it, and uh, every comedian just gets up and says, all right, I'm talking about it as well. But it, it, it's such a, you know, comedy is about, shared experiences and it's hopefully a once in a lifetime thing that we have all gone through so and everyone's got different angles there's there's great i'm watching mate get up and perform i go really good that's a good idea i mean there's all the obvious stuff about toilet paper hoarding and things like that uh if you come to my show i've got a theory another conspiracy theory that it's all to do with aliens uh i don't have proof of this keep wearing your mask but uh, if you want to come down and see my theory, I think I think it's got legs. Do I have to wear a tinfoil hat as well as a mask to your show? 
You, I mean, it's not mandatory, but it's encouraged. <laughs> I think it's nice aliens coming to coming to Earth. That's oh, my theory. So, even look, though they've killed us with COVID, but they're nice aliens. So, kind of close encounters, aliens, not the nasty ones that burst through Sigourney Weaver's chest, aliens. Oh no, no, no! We're talking like Vulcans from Star Trek here. Yeah, <laughs> they would do a better job than we are at the moment. I'd imagine. Uh, Daddy, hell yeah! Uh, up and about is the show. Where are you performing and when? Imperial Hotel uh, this Monday, the uh, 29th of March. That just one week. We just uh, everyone's doing shorter seasons, so I'm just doing uh, one week at seven o'clock. Imperial Hotel opposite Parliament, seven o'clock every night, six o'clock on Sunday, and yeah, it's the Easter weekend. So you know you've all got sleep-ins on the Mondays and the Friday. Come on in. Also, tickets are about you know they they, they are going fast. So do book ahead, folks. That's uh, that's important. I'm going to come and see it for sure. Good on you, Danny. Good to talk to you, and all the best with the comedy festival. Thanks, Frankie, and uh, fight the good fight, comrade. Good on you, mate. Danny McGinlay there, who is uh, performing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. The show is called Up and About. Go to comedyfestival.com.au and uh, search him out and grab a ticket for his show in Melbourne. If you're in Melbourne, you can get along and enjoy. That's it for On The Job for this week. Uh, Sally will be back next week. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends about it, uh, and give us a rating on whatever platform that you are using so that others can find us. We love a five-star rating. We're greedy for those. My name is Francis Leach and I'll catch you next week on The Job.